Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Todd Capone, who is author of The Transparency Sale, How Unexpected Honesty and Understanding the Buying Brain Can Transform Your Results. We will discuss his book. Todd is also a keynote speaker, workshop leader, and trainer, as well as principal and founder of Sales Melon. Todd, welcome. Thank you for having me. What are we talking about when we say transparency sale? Well, yeah, it's really interesting. There's a couple of things that are happening in the world that are basically pushing an evolution in the world of of sales or really the world of influence. And I I really think it starts um, with the fact that, and for anybody who's listening, there's this massive proliferation of reviews and feedback on everything we do and buy and experience. I mean, I I can't imagine that people are uh, buying any product that is of a medium to high consideration now without first looking at reviews and, uh, you know, trying to figure out what their experience is going to be like or picking a hotel or picking a restaurant in a town you've never been in. And so that proliferation is really changing the way that we buy as individuals. And, of course, it's got to change the way that we sell. But the the second piece of this, and this is what – it's funny. um, I was the chief revenue officer of a company called Power Reviews in Chicago, And we had done a research study with Northwestern University here that looked at how people buy when they buy online. And I found, first of all, that the the data is very much mirrors the way that we buy when we don't buy online and we have to buy with a salesperson. But it's amazing. What they found is that when a consumer is out looking at reviews or trying to make a purchase, 96% of us look at reviews first. But the amazing thing is that 82% of us look for the negative reviews first, and a review score that's between a 4.2 and a 4.5 versus a 5, you know, it actually sells better than a perfect 5. So imperfection sells better than perfection. And so this is kind of a long way of getting to what the transparency sale is, but it's this revelation that when we're buying, we seek out the negatives when we're selling, most of us hide the negatives, and we try to present our products as being perfect. And not only does that not work for the buying brain, but the proliferation of reviews and feedback on everything that we do buy and experience tells us that you can't hide your flaws and expect to get away with it anyway today. So it's about helping anybody who's doing any kind of influence, whether you're in sales or in HR or in marketing, start to embrace your flaws and lead with them. And it gives you kind of the roadmap to help you get there. The idea is, yes, we are west-facing, but that's okay because that's where the sun sets. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. What are we referring to when we say understanding the buying brain? Yeah, I mean, it's really that whole aspect around the fact that we as human beings – are wired to essentially uh, resist being influenced unduly. So, you know, imagine uh, like when you first walk into a car dealership or when you look out your window and you see a couple of people with that are really well-dressed with a uh, clipboard walking up your driveway. It's like 
you run to the back of the house, you close the drapes, and it's like you know somebody's coming to take your provisions, right? It, we're, we're wired to resist being sold to, and you know that second piece around we're wired to try to predict what our experiences are going to be like, and that's why we seek out ratings and reviews on things you know from our peers, and we're smart enough to be able to see which ones are valid and which ones aren't, and you know that's that's part of our being. And it was amazing to me that, you know, that was kind of the number one thing that I discovered on this journey of trying to figure out why a 4.2 to a 4.5 sells better than a 5. But there was a number of other uh, revelations that have been found by neuroscientists over the last 10 years that have yet to make their way into the business world around how we make decisions with feeling and emotion and we only use logic to back it up, uh, which is another another whole topic. Uh, this idea that as sellers, as selling professionals, you know, I always used to lead with the logic, the ROI, the features, the benefits. But what we know as human beings is that we're actually making our decisions in our emotion or feeling center of our brain. And that's why stories and uh, transparency and honesty and authenticity that's pure helps us get to the ultimate goal, which is to have that buyer make a decision in our favor as quickly as possible. Is that a little bit like behavioral economics that we've been hearing a lot about? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. There's so much. I mean, it's amazing to me. Neuroscientists have literally pinpointed what happens in the brain that triggers a decision. And so and in the business world, like, wouldn't that be really valuable to know? Um, and, and obviously to use for good, not evil. But yeah, there's the behavioral economics pieces um, there's a bunch that started to make its way into marketing. Um, so, you know, if you just look on Google under the topic neuromarketing, you'll find a number of really well-written books and articles about, you know, how the brain science could help you in your attempts to position and influence. And what I'm attempting to do is really take it more wholeheartedly into the world of sales. I mean, it's amazing to be like Gallup every year. Uh, they come up with a list of the most to least trusted professions. And every year at the top, it's things like nurses and veterinarians. And every year at the bottom, it's salespeople, telemarketers, and then, of course, members of Congress, I think, came in last this last year. But it, you know, I think that has to change. You know, this changing world where there's you know feedback and reviews and easy access to any kind of information you need to make an informed decision that we can no longer be an untrustworthy profession and expect the profession to survive much into the 2020s. It's funny because I think it's not just sales, but marketing even is somehow tainted. I was discussing marketing with somebody the other day and saying that a particular small business wasn't doing a good job of marketing. And the response was, that marketing was a bad thing and that these were good people and good people didn't market. Well, it's uh, there's a company called Trust Radius that just came out with a study that looked at, you know, how buyers act when they're when they're trying to make a decision, like what do they look at, what do they trust? And what they found was that the content that comes out of marketing is trusted less than reviews and feedback today. 
And that gap is widening. So even case studies that marketers put out are trusted less than the feedback and reviews that people see and the, the friends that they talk to and their peers and other industries. And so that this part of this evolution in the world of selling and marketing is that marketers need to change too. And I, I think here's the, the kind of the key thing. That whole data point around how when we're going to go buy something online, so let's say we're on Crocs and we're going to buy a pair of shoes, that a review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5 sells better than a product that's all perfect fives. And I think as marketers, we need to start looking across the ecosystem of the Internet and where buyers are going to look and start to pull that information together and then start to use that to inform your messaging. Um, we don't want marketers to suddenly think, well, why don't we just tell everybody why we're terrible? Well, no, 4.2 to 4.5 is a very specific target that we're trying to hit. Uh, a, a funny little um, analogy here is uh, the, the supermodel Tyra Banks came out with a word called flossum. And what that means is we all should embrace our flossomeness, which means we all have flaws, but we should know that we're awesome regardless. And I think that's a great word for marketers to embrace is to understand that none of our products or services are perfect, that we need to understand not only where we're flawed, but what customers are going to find when they do their own research and then use that to inform our messaging. And I believe that that's going to kind of revitalize the marketing world as well. If I understand correctly, what you're saying is, not that you should tell your customers you're terrible, but rather that you should be upfront about small flaws, which is this 4.2 to 4.5 as the sweet spot makes sense. Because below that, you're talking about perhaps serious concerns that are more difficult to overcome. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, as a business, if if you are terrible, you're probably not going to last anyway. So I, I, but the hope is, that there are flaws, there are imperfections, or there are things that you've chosen not to be good at so you can be really good at your core. You know, one example that I talk often about is in the, the kind of the business to consumer retail space, and that's Ikea. You know, it, I'm sure if you've ever been to an Ikea before, it's not necessarily a pleasant experience in that you find that the product, you know, you go through this labyrinth of hallways and there's people everywhere you finally find what you want, you write down the code or you take a picture of it because you're going to go to the warehouse down in the basement and find the product yourself, and then you're going to put it onto a cart that doesn't have brakes. You're going to wheel it into the parking lot, try to jam the boxes into your car somehow, and then when you get home, you open these boxes, and there's 150 parts, and the work instructions, like the uh, assembly instructions, have no words on it. It's like a, a child drew them in crayon, and yet Ikea continues to be the number one furniture retailer in the world for eight years in a row. And what, what they've done essentially is told the world, listen, we're not going to be good at that experience of finding and packing and putting together your, your furniture so that we can be really good at giving you modern Scandinavian design furniture that you didn't pay a whole lot for. And so that's, that's their way of embracing not only transparency, but embracing their flaws and telling the world we're not going to be good at one thing so we can be good at something else. You know, Southwest Airlines really capitalized on this a, a few years ago when they said 
hey, listen, you know, we're going to kind of herd you in. We're not going to have a drink cart and meals on our planes, but you're going to be comfortable and we're going to be cool people and we're going to get you where you're trying to go and you're not going to pay as much. And they, they kind of took over the world. I, I think every organization's got an opportunity to, to think that way and then to think about your marketing and how do you embrace those things that you're going to sacrifice so you can be really good at what matters to the to your consumer base. I just read an article in the New York Times that talked about a fairly large and well-known company with a lot of brands that are familiar mainstream brands in the United States. And they have discovered that the brand can be traced back to a Nazi era and the use of slave labor. Part of the reason they're so successful is because at one point they relied on slave labor. And like that one, there have been others, including one of the examples you gave, has also been linked to that very dark part of our history. Do you embrace those flaws, and, and what do you do about them? Because this is something you can't change. It's part of the history of the company. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, that's, um, that's a really good question. Um, I, I mean, I believe in any circumstance, embracing your flaws and leading with them is the only way to survive. Um, you know, when you go into a job interview, when you're uh, recruiting for a position, when you're going in to present to your board, or you go, uh, you know, you're selling a car or whatever it is, whatever the elephant in the room is, nothing else you're going to say matters until you've addressed the elephant in the room. And in the example you just gave, I mean, that's a, that's a big one. You know, if you're going to have a situation where your customers are going to start to swell around you in a negative way, um, that I think you got to, instead of hiding it, pretend like it didn't happen. Um, I think you've got to embrace it. You've got to tell your story. You've got to be authentic. You've got to be honest. And otherwise, you're never going to win those customers back. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a baseball fan, you know, back in the late 90s. They called it the steroid era. And there's still baseball players that have been associated with that steroid era. I mean, they were taking illegal drugs to optimize their performance. When we look back at those players, the ones that we still hold dear in our hearts are the ones that admitted it and came right out and said, yeah, I did it. Here's why. It was terrible. Um, and now we still embrace those people. The ones we don't, the ones that will never see the Hall of Fame, are the ones that still go on interviews and say, nope, I didn't do it. That's a lie. You know, I think we all know in our heart what authenticity and honesty is. And those people that embrace those things are the ones that win. Where do you draw the line? What is something that you can't embrace? Or is there something that you can't embrace and move forward and say, yes, but I'm embracing it, I'm taking ownership of it, and you should buy my products? Is there a line, and where is it It's so? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that line is the 4-2 to 4-5, essentially. You know, if, if you've got something that, has been so egregiously horrible about your product, about your past, about whatever it happens to be associated with your product, I think that you're going to have a hard time staying in business anyway. Um, you know, I, I tell a story, and it's a bit of a sad story at the end of my book in the afterward about a business here in where I live 
who, when we went on vacation, we've got three rescue dogs. Uh, we had them board our dogs. And uh, when they when they did, we went on vacation. We went to Disneyland. As we were walking into Disneyland, they called and told us that one of our dogs went crazy and he escaped. And we found out very quickly that that was all just made up, um, that they just lost the dog when the garbage guys came. And, you know, that whole story, it was them coming out and saying, hey, the dog was terrible, um, but we lost him. Um, I, I think that's kind of the line, that they're trying to be transparent and trying to be honest and say, yeah, he, he got out. We were supposed to be caring, but it was his fault. Like, that's that's a big line to, to cross versus embracing the fact that, hey, listen, businesses make mistakes. We make errors sometimes, and we are going to hold ourselves accountable to that. We are going to not only um, be transparent around what happened, but we're going to be transparent around all the steps we're going to do to make sure that that doesn't happen again and embrace a culture of doing things the right way. And again, those are the companies that win and the ones that kind of feign transparency. I just bought a new car about three weeks ago and the auto dealership uh, basically on their website pretends to be transparent when, when the minute I walk in, it's clear that all of the things that they be, they're transparent about on their website turn out to be false and just ways to draw me into the dealership. That's a pretty big line that's being crossed in many organizations that aren't quite understanding what transparency is just yet. Well, and this is exactly it, is this concept of being open when they're really not and being transparent when they're not. How do you know where this 4.2 to 4.5 on a scale of 1 to 5, right? How do you know where that sweet spot is in terms of you being transparent and owning your flaws? Uh, because it sounds really easy as we're discussing it. Oh, well, you're going to get these reviews. But we all know that there are trolls out there who are posting nasty reviews because they are having a bad day or because they're a competitor, whatever it is that drives trolls. And there are people who are leaving reviews that are not really useful because they're not very deep or not very honest, whatever the reasons are. How do you get yourself to that space that is ideal? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, when we think about the brain science of it, and I encourage all of your listeners here to think about the last time they bought something of medium consideration, meaning it was enough dollars or resources that mattered, and you didn't know uh, about the product before, like you'd never bought it before. You know, most of us, again, 95 plus percent of us are going out and uh, that's a power review study that was done with Northwestern University, as I mentioned earlier. 95 plus percent of us are going out and looking at reviews first. 82 percent are looking for the negative reviews first. And as I've talked to people throughout this journey, those 82 percent, including myself, know when a negative review is fair or not. They know when they read that negative review, whether or not it applies to them and their circumstances. You know, I there was an author that I was recently talking to who had a book that came out, and his reviews are almost all fives. And then he got an, a, a one-star review. And the review read, it, it was clearly not about his book. It was about a toaster that had an electrical issue and fried out. So that was the review. 
And this guy was so mad that there was this one-star review on his product, um, and it had nothing to do with the book. And what I encouraged him to do is say, listen, that's awesome. It actually gives credibility to the rest of the set of reviews when you've got one one star review that has nothing to do with the book because your consumers are going to go seek that one out. And when they read that it's got nothing to do with the book, again, it lends credibility to all the rest of the reviews and it helps disarm the brain's filter that resists being influenced. So I think number one thing to think about is when you get a negative review, embrace it. And again, I think, you know, most of these review technologies or anywhere on the web where people are leaving reviews you've got the opportunity to respond to it. And the way you respond to it is really your success or failure as a business. You know, if you deny it and launch into an attack around the person that left it, you're probably not going to do as well as the opposite, which is to embrace it and say, hey, listen, we understand that that happened. We're sorry that it happened. And here's what we're doing to make sure that we not only take care of you, but make sure that it never happens again. So as a business, Again, we're not all things to all people. No business is and no business can possibly aim to achieve that lofty goal. If your products are not good and they really should be a three to three and a half, I think that you need to start embracing that feedback and using that feedback as a way to move your business up and move your business into that 4.2 to 4.5 stage. So, Um, As a business, we just need to know that in order to be successful, we've got to be really good at what we're good at, and uh, but we've got to know that we're not perfect. And if we're falling below that kind of 4.2 to 4.5 range, we've got to embrace those negative reviews and do everything we can to turn those customers around and have the new customers giving us high scores because that's how you get into that range. What would you say to the businesses that are not providing a forum for reviews? I've seen a number of platforms where the business does not provide any space for comments or reviews. And when you ask the question, well, how come there are no reviews on your website, they become very uncomfortable, they change the topic, um, or they tell you that they've taken reviews and that they're in quotes. But it, so it wasn't the person who put, posted the review, it was the company that posted the review. Well, I'll tell you, we had done a bunch of studies when I was at Power Reviews. And by the way, I, when I mentioned Power Reviews, what they do is they help retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews on their websites. And what we found in the data, uh, the Northwestern study and then some independent studies that we had done, is we found that when you are a retailer or any kind of e-commerce site and you're not providing all of the information the brain needs to make a good decision, what happens? Well, they leave your site, and many times they don't come back. They're going to go do research, and if they can't satisfy their brain's desire to predict what their experience is going to be like, using your products and services, they're going to leave and try to find it elsewhere. And so you think that by not providing true, authentic reviews on your site is doing yourself some kind of a favor. The brain science and the data all tell us that you're wrong. And now being, you know, 2019, we need to embrace transparency because the future is radically transparent as far as I can see. There's just this massive proliferation of information on everything everywhere. And like to your point about the companies that just take the good reviews and then put them in quotes and put them on their website, that's not authenticity. That's marketing. 
you know, that's taking the best of. And it, again, marketing is not trusted as well as truly authentic feedback that consumers or buyers in a B2B space get from other uh, peers and consumers like themselves. You say in your book, and I think you mentioned it earlier, that many of the decisions that we make are sort of the way that our brain works. I think that you say in the book that 90% of our decisions are done subconsciously, meaning that we're not aware when we're making the decisions what the process is like. Is that what the idea is? Yeah, I mean, I think in the, the influence, the world of influence, when we think about trying to get somebody else to make a decision, we often think that they're going to make a decision. It's one decision. But in the process, our brains are literally making hundreds or thousands of micro decisions. As a matter of fact, your listeners right now are subconsciously and constantly deciding whether they want to keep listening or not. They might not be consciously thinking about those decisions, but subconsciously their brain is prioritizing eight other things, which include sort of like basic survival. Like they're, they're looking out their window in their peripheral subconsciously, making sure that a pterodactyl doesn't come flying through the window to eat them. Or, you know, they're thinking about, um, you know, getting their genes to the next, uh, next generation, which means like, do I have enough to eat? You know, so there's a lot of things that our brains are doing and we need to force it to continue to pay attention. So, when we think about 90 plus percent of our decisions are made subconsciously, your buyers, the people that you're selling to, that you're marketing to, that you're doing PR to, they're making a decision about your brand subconsciously every time they see your brand's name, every time they get an email from you, every time they hear a voice on a voicemail of somebody from your organization or even your competitor's organization, there is just this whole giant pile of subconscious decisions that are influencing perception that are going on in a buyer's journey. And we need to stop thinking about the one decision, which is, are they going to buy from us or not? And start thinking about all those micro decisions that are going on along that journey. What decision do consumers make when they get to that company website that has no reviews because we see companies that are out there that are doing that, and they're still in business. Are they slowly becoming obsolete? Are consumers walking away in such numbers that eventually they won't be able to stay in business? What does that mean? Because there are still a lot of people who are non-believers. They don't want to see any negative reviews. Then, In order not to see any negative reviews, they don't allow any reviews. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I think, it, and obviously the worst answer ever is it depends, but it depends on the vertical. If there are other options, other companies that are in the space that are offering reviews, I think you're going to find that those organizations that aren't are going to slowly start losing uh, to that competition. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, about five years ago, we were working with a company in the uh, online book sales space. And uh, at the time, you know, obviously Amazon was doing what they're doing now. Um, but, you know, there's Barnes and Noble. There's all these sites that had reviews right next to the products. And this organization had never collected or displayed reviews on their website. And so they had called us up and said, hey, listen, I think we're ready to do this. Like, we probably should be doing it. So we brought our team in and we did an analysis of the, the data. So we went into their analytics on their website. And what we found pretty quickly 
was that, you know, in one example, uh, there was a book that came out back then called Gone Girl. And uh, there was we were able to see that consumers were coming to their site, this organization site, looking at the book Gone Girl, looking at this description of the book. And then they were leaving and going to Amazon. And we could tell that once they left, they never came back. And so, you know, in really working with our data scientists to figure out what was going on, we found that the, the reason that these consumers were going to Amazon and not coming back is that they were not satisfying their brain's desire to predict their experience, which, again, so much of that happens through reviews on a website, both positive and negative. And if they can't get it somewhere, they're going to go somewhere else and find it. And if they're satisfied there, they'll convert and not come back. And so we see that, obviously, in book selling, but – you know, you start to see that in any kind of industry where there is com- competition and the brain can be better satisfied somewhere else versus your organization. Again, I, the data and the science tells us that it's time to embrace both positive and negative reviews. Otherwise, you are going to be slowing your sales cycles, increasing your loss rates, and potentially spending time with customers that are potentially not your best buyer. How do you gauge the trustworthiness of the reviews? Because now that this has become an issue, there are companies out there that are selling fake reviews. You can buy X number of reviews from people who have never used the product or service or read the book or whatever it is. And so they flooded the market with false information and people are losing trust in the reviews. And at the same time, sites like Amazon are just throwing out tens of thousands of actual reviews because they're using automated technology to decide whether it's a real review or not. Is there some formula that you, the seller, can use to maintain authenticity to ensure that you have real content, or should you be buying fake reviews, et cetera? Yeah, so I'll, there's two things on that. So number one is if you are collecting, displaying ratings and reviews on your website with a reputable service provider, and that's companies like Power Reviews, Bizarre Voice, uh, Yotpo, um, there's, there's a few other ones out there. They all have um, fraud detection as an inherent part of their solutions, and if they didn't, they wouldn't be in business. So essentially what those solutions are doing is they're looking at uh, the number of reviews coming from a specific IP address. Uh, If there's a flood, they will shut off that IP address. If there's a certain product that's getting a flood of reviews at one time, they will shut it off. They can see there's massive alerts in all of these organizations to ensure that that's not happening. So, A, if you're using a reputable uh, reviews provider, that shouldn't happen, that won't happen. Um, and then if you even think about the reviews that you read on Yelp or on TripAdvisor, they all have the same thing. They all have very specific criteria that they're using now. They've got the detection devices to make sure that's not happening again. Reputable review providers are going to take care of that. But the second thing that I would argue is that, again, when we look at this data around the fact that 82-plus percent of us look for the negative reviews first, that your positive reviews, if you've got – nothing but positive reviews, you're actually pushing buyers away. It is not helping your case. Even on my book right now, if you go to Amazon, my, my review score I think is a 482, which is almost a little too high. 
But when you look at the ones that have been clicked as the most helpful, it's not the fives, it's the fours. So, again, I think that if you're going to go out and buy a ton of five-star reviews, you're actually not doing yourself any favors because those aren't the ones that your buyers are seeking. And, again, if you're using a reputable service, they're going to shut that down pretty quickly. Now, now you can't hide all of them. You can't um, prevent all of that from happening. But the, the, the review space will not survive unless they fix it. And I know every organization that I'm associated with is making that their number one priority, and we're already seeing the fruits of that. What do you say to listeners who say, yeah, but there are people who are afraid of leaving honest reviews because they're afraid that someone's going to retaliate against them? So, for example, on a particular website, if you have two parties and one party says, hey, you didn't deliver what you said you were going to deliver, the place that I rented didn't look the way that it appeared in the photos, which is the number one complaint in some of these website, then the other party comes back and says that you were terrible, even though it's not true. How do you address that retaliation concern? Yeah, I mean, I I hope that the retaliation isn't physical and it's only on a website. And and like I said, I think we've entered an era where if you're going to leave a negative review or if somebody leaves a negative review on your site, that uh, we've entered this era where you need to embrace that, whether it's true or not. And uh, help validate it and help other consumers that come to that site um, understand that that's not going to happen to them. Now, I know that like when I'm walk- on Yelp and I'm looking at restaurant reviews, um, that it's pretty easy for me as a consumer and the people I talk to feel the same way to see which ones are fair and which ones are not fair. Um, you know, if, if it was a Friday night at seven o'clock at the most busy restaurant and they're complaining about the food service was slow. Okay. Well, of course it was slow. That means the restaurant must be really popular. That's good. Um, now, I think, you know, the kind of the second piece of that answer is that, you know, we're still in an era where only 3 to 5%, according to the power review studies, of consumers will leave reviews. And most individuals need to be incentivized to be able to do it. And so, you know, that creates a little bit of a conflict of interest. But even that 3 to 5%, is helping to inform future consumers of the, you know, they help them make those predictions around what their product and service experience is going to be like in the B2B space. We're seeing that a lot that there are now sites that are collecting and displaying ratings and reviews for B2B in the tech space. There's companies like G2 crowd and trust radius. There's companies across all industries in B2B like Glassdoor that are helping current and past employees leave reviews around what the work experience is what like, what the culture is like, what the recruiting experience was like, you know, what their onboarding experience was like. And so we're starting to see all of that kind of feed across industries. So if you're not finding the information that you need as a consumer to satisfy your brain and predict what your experience is going to be like, it's easy to call your friends. So whether the review is posted online or not, it's now so easy to connect with other people that, again, if you've got flaws, embrace them, lead with them, and I'm telling you, there's no way to hide them anymore, regardless whether or not you put reviews on your website or not. How do you identify the flaws? It sounds like a very easy question, but oftentimes companies are unaware 
especially larger companies, they're not totally in tune. They're not self-aware with all of the issues that they have. When you have a very strong leader, oftentimes the direct reports are hesitant to share honest feedback, again, for fear of retaliation. What can a company do to identify what these flaws are and whether they're in that 4.2 to 4.5 range or whether there are more serious concerns? Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of the reprioritization of what marketing does. Um, it's as a marketer, I think we, so in big organizations or small, we need to start empathizing with our customers and understand that, take a step back and go, all right, listen, if I'm going to evaluate this company's products and services, if I'm like, if I'm going to evaluate my own company's products and services, where am I going to go? What research am I going to do? Who am I going to talk to? And what am I going to find? I think on a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly basis, that that needs to be a regular part of marketing's responsibilities is to pull all that information in, to discuss it, to help um, massage your messaging, and make sure that your salespeople, like I joked about before, aren't going in and saying, hey, listen to how terrible we are. Like that, That's part of marketing's role. There are companies, um, I can't remember, there's a product, it's like a crock pot that's been selling on Amazon and uh, like it sells like crazy. That CEO literally, I think there's been like 400,000 reviews on that thing. That CEO every single week reads every single review and the negative ones he responds to, if he starts to see a trend on the negative ones, he takes that to his product organization and starts to work on paths to make sure that that's fixed in the future. I think every great CEO or leader in today's era needs to embrace that. Figure out where your buyers are going to go to do their research, pull all that data in and make it, you know, use it to not only inform your messaging, but inform your product direction and your direction as an organization. What do you mean by email prospecting? You talk about that. You dedicate a chapter to that in the book. There are a lot of people out there who think that email is dead from a marketing perspective. What what do you have to say about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a, I, I was the chief revenue officer for four years in, in my old role, and I was getting 100 to 150 uh, emails a day. And there was a large chunk of those, which were cold emails that were coming from sellers, marketers, um, recruiters, you know, just that whole collection. And so what I talk about in the book, but I just encourage all of you to think about, is to think about your own inbox and just to empathize with those people that you're emailing to. That, you know, there was a time probably 10 years ago where all the conversations were about optimizing the subject line. That we need to optimize the subject line because that's the difference between whether an email gets opened or not. Well, I know on my email inbox and every other one, like, you know, I've got Outlook for one email, I've got Gmail, and I've got my phone. There's not only the subject line, but you can see the first 10 words of the email now. Like there's a preview pane in most people's inbox. Are, are we optimizing that? And my answer is no. I don't think most people have thought about that. As, a, as an executive that's opening my inbox, I'm immediately and subconsciously looking at all of those emails, subject line plus the first 10 words, and making a decision as to whether that email is there to help me or to sell me. And it might be the greatest sales pitch in the history of the world in that email, but if I 
subconsciously decide that that email is there to sell me when I've got a full inbox and a lot of priorities, I'm that that email gets deleted. And as I've talked to, you know, executives and people across uh, the, the different industries, that that's a really common theme. So my advice for everybody there is to start to think about the cold email outreaches that you use. It's still a vital communication tool that's used by all of us. Like as an executive, I, you know, I always used to joke that it was like uh, playing the instant lottery, that odds are that it's going to be a loser, but I got to check because there might be a winner in there. It could be an email from a customer, from my boss, from my board, you know, it could be something good. So I got to check. And so I, I would just encourage people to start thinking about how in those first 10 words can I, first of all, get rid of any I or we. The minute you make it about yourself and not about the person that you're prospecting to, the minute you lose them in terms of them seeing it as being a sold to type of opportunity. But the second piece is how can you make it obvious to a person that you're reaching out to that you are there to help them in a personalized way? And what I mean by personalized way is, you know, one example is, you know, I was hiring uh, basically inside salespeople and I got an email uh, from a company that I'd never heard of before. And in those first 10 words, they showed me that they're like, listen, you're hiring what's called sales development reps. We just did a study of how much those sales development reps are making in the Chicago market. And so I saw that and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I want to make sure that I'm hitting the market conditions. And I opened it and it was really useful and there was no sales pitch in it. A week later, they sent me another email that was very similar, uh, you know, to help me prepare for my next board meeting. Um, they sent me a template that other, you know, heads of sales and chief revenue officers are using to prepare for their board meetings. This thing saved me a ton of time and it was super helpful. And it was evident in the first 10 words. I opened it and suddenly I was interested in learning about them. Instead of them selling to me, they were aiding me. And it flipped the script to where now I was like, all right, I really like these people. They get me. They're helping me. I want to understand who they are. I, it, you know, this is, that's kind of an opinion piece, but it's also there's brain science to back it up, that the future of email is still very prevalent. But I believe that emails need to be personalized, valuable in a personalized way, and short if they're going to be successful from a marketing perspective. That reminds me of something that uh... – previous guest said, as an author, he said, when you do an interview, you need to give away the most valuable information that you have, because that's what's going to drive people to you and to your book. Do you think yeah. that's true? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, it, with my book, for example, you know, I, I really appreciate being on here and I will share everything in it. Like if, if I, uh, like that's kind of the whole point of writing the book is that I just felt like these are important ideas and this is an important evolution that's happening in the world of, of sales and marketing and PR and influence. And I just want to get those ideas out there because I'm just passionate about those verticals and about those professions. And I think that there's a real great opportunity to make people better. They do. And in so doing, help consumers and buyers make better, smarter decisions, make them faster, make the, the right decisions. Would you tell us a little bit more about the Northwest University study that you began with, the 96% of us 
rely on reviews for medium and larger purchases, et cetera. When did that study take place and um, any other findings that you remember? Yeah, I mean, it was the, the study took place in 2015. And uh, it's been revised a couple of times since then to kind of update. I think at the time it came out, it was 92% of consumers were looking for reviews for medium and high consideration purchases, especially when they hadn't bought the product or service before. Uh, but that number has gone up to 95% as of 2017. And I believe it's just continuing to go higher. Like, I, I don't actually know, or I don't know if I've met anybody who uh, does not look at reviews before making a purchase. And as the study kind of dove deep, and you, I, I don't work at Power Reviews anymore, but I know you can go to their website and, and download the study. But it talked about uh, some of the interesting things that are per category. So 4.2 to 4.5 is across all, but in certain categories, it's more or less important. Um, so there are certain categories where, like, let's say it's um, products for your baby, that the number skews a little bit higher. It's more, I think it was like 4.4 to 4.7. Um, for things that are a little bit more day-to-day, -day, the number skews a little bit lower. Um, but, you know, it's still, in all cases, it was found that imperfection and having those flaws available to the consumers aided in conversion, that across the board, products sold better when there was negative reviews associated with them. As a part of that study, too, and here's an interesting point per your question earlier about whether you should have reviews on your site at all, that even having one review, so you've got a product that has one review, that product will sell better almost regardless of what the review score is. Um, I, I don't remember the specifics around whether or not if it's like a terrible one-star review, whether it helps, but I think if it's a three or higher, um, that that product will actually convert more often than a product that has no reviews at all. And that speaks to the brain science around this. So there was a lot of other interesting concepts in there that talked about uh, where um, reviews start to accelerate. So a product that has a review score between a one and a three uh, is a pretty flat conversion rate. Once it gets to three, it accelerates, it peaks from four, two to four, five, and then it drops back down again as it approaches a five. So lots of interesting stuff in it. Tell us a little bit about emotion. You talked about it earlier, saying that we really start from the point of emotion in our buying process rather than logic. So logic is kind of making us step back, and emotion is making us step forward. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that, if you would. Yeah, and so that was the the so interesting part about the brain science research that I did. And I'm not smart enough to like, I'm not a neuroscientist. So I actually found a neuroscientist at DePaul university to help validate these concepts and then be able to take them and make them digestible for sellers, marketers, people in PR recruiters, all of those types of roles. Essentially though, what was found is that we as human beings make decisions in our limbic, uh, which governs our emotions and our feelings in our brain. And so essentially all of our decisions are made using emotion and feeling. And then we use logic only to back up the feeling and emotion. And there's a bunch of research done by people like Antonio Damasio and Martin Lindstrom and these neuroscientists that really pinpointed that to be absolutely the case. I'll tell you, for anybody who's listening here, the, the piece to take away from that, there's a couple of things. Number one is that logic is polarizing as a result. So if we're making decisions using our emotion and feeling center, 
Yet we go into a, an influence situation, a selling situation, leading with logic. And what I mean by that is leading with the ROI and the futures, the benefits, the data. Whatever the preconceived notion is of the person that's coming in to hear this pitch, let's say they're for you, they will take that data and they will bold, you know, embolden their opinion of you using that data. So it helps bolster their argument. If they're against you, their brain will immediately make counter arguments to your data and logic and embolden their previously held opinion that they don't like you. And the data shows this over and over again, that again, when we lead with logic, whatever preconceived notions we walk into a room with, we're actually more emboldened in those preconceived ideas. When we lead with emotion and feeling, there was a study that was done uh, that uh, where People were brought into a, a lab, and they were hooked up to an fMRI machine, which is a, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and they were shown the movie The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And as they watched the movie, their brains all worked in unison. And during highly emotional points, it was almost as if they were looking at the same brain across all of the participants. When we lead with stories and we tell stories and, and impart emotion in our ability to influence, we bring people together. And so the, the second piece of that is, what do you mean by emotion and feeling, like happy and sad? Well, there's a neuroscientist, Dr. David Rock, that actually came up with a model that explains what those emotions and feelings are that help guide our decision making. He called it the SCARF model. But essentially what it says is when we make an emotion or feeling decision, we're analyzing all or one of these five things that are scarf. So the S is status. So is this purchase going to give me recognition? Am I going to get, um, you know, validation from making this purchase? The C is certainty, which speaks to the power of reviews. But certainty means, you know, our, our ability to we're trying to predict and get a feeling for what our experience is going to be like. The A is autonomy, meaning am I going to uh, regain, you know, have control, uh, or am I going to lose control as a, a result of making this purchase? The R is relatedness. Uh, relatedness has to do with um, social constructs. So uh, how are, you know, does this purchase help me relate to other people? You know, we're, we're kind of wired to be in groups. Um, does this purchase help? in a higher order. So when we think about environmentalism or any of these, um, these ideas that people have around what products do, uh, relatedness is a piece of that feeling. And then the F is fairness. Am I going to get the return of the investment that I'm making in time and dollars? Is this a fair purchase that I'm making? And so that, you know, that's how we need to start thinking about feeling and emotion is, when we're pitching somebody or trying to influence somebody, we need to tell stories. We need to impart emotions and know that our buyers are making decisions with that feeling and emotion center and only using logic to justify that to other people outside of what's going on in their brain. Now, emotions are not all created equal. We know that some emotions are much more powerful than others, certainly in creating memories and in making our bodies alert. What would you say about that? Um, well, I think it's uh, that's a hard one because, you know, when you look at the, the studies, I think at its core, most sellers and marketers think that people are going to make decisions with logic, and that's the only way that it's going to work. 
And um, so knowing that emotion and feeling is going to drive it is just a change that we all need to think about. You know, not to bring up a a bad story, but when you think about the history of uh, presidential approval ratings, um, the highest it had ever been in the history of presidential approval ratings was a month after 9-11, so September 11, 2001, uh, by a large uh, portion. So when we think about people in, you know, the, the kind of the polarized political landscape that we're in, this emotional thing that happened brought the whole country together, and that emotion and feeling, you know, was was a binder for the organ for the uh, for the country versus what we see in today's political landscape, which is logic, 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 and massive polarization. So, I think to your point around, you know, all emotions are not created equal. That is true. Some are more binding than others, but at its core, we are making decisions using those emotions and feelings and using the logic logic to back it up. Should you be using fear, for example, as a driver in your process? Is that a good emotion that's going to drive results, or is that going to upset your clients, your customers? Is there, is there an answer even that fits everybody? Yeah, there, there's a lot of research on this, and I've, this has been something that I've studied a lot since the book came out um, because I, I think it's super interesting. Um, so let's we'll take a, a couple of uh, paths to think about this. Um, we are drawn to a short-term reward more than we are drawn away from a long-term pain. However, in the short, if the pain is short-term, we are drawn more away from the short-term pain than the short-term reward. And here's what I, I'll give you a quick little story. So Martin Lindstrom is a neuroscientist. He um, brought, um, a, it was 208 people into a lab and uh, they were smokers. And what he did is he, as they walked in, he showed them a cigarette warning label and said, hey, what does this cigarette warning label make you think? And in almost every case, those individuals said, oh, gosh, I got to stop smoking. Like, this is killing me. Then he ended up putting them into an fMRI machine uh, that I talked about earlier, the functional MRI machine. And what he found is that in just about every case, when a cigarette warning label was shown to those individuals, their craving center went off. They were actually drawn to want to have a cigarette by looking at this warning that tells them that, hey, it eventually is going to kill you. So, like, that was one piece of evidence that started to inform this idea that we are drawn to the short-term reward. However, in if the, the short-term, the it's a pain. So we're trying to avoid pain versus grab the reward. What we found is that we are um, more averse to the short-term pain than we are to the short-term reward. And I, I think the one thing for everybody to consider, though, when you think about fear, is there's a line. Um, I've seen sellers that try to lead with fear, but they position it in a way that makes that buyer feel stupid, like feel like what they're doing today is is not intelligent, like they've made a bad decision before they made their previous purchase. And that is very polarizing. Um, so I think the thing to keep in mind here is if we're talking about short-term fear versus short-term reward, if you want to grasp on to that avoidance of short-term fear, just make sure you're positioning in a way that does not make that buyer or that consumer feel like uh, 
they're somehow inferior, dumb, made a bad decision in the past. Uh, encourage these people, but to see that that short-term fear is real. What suggestions would you share with our listeners, Todd, who want to embrace this concept of transparency? Perhaps they're not allowing feedback on their websites or they have bristled when they have received negative feedback. What, say, three tips would you share with them to get them started on the path to embrace this idea? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, number one is just the future is radically transparent. I think it's, you know, look inward and think about the purchases of substance that you make as an individual. And if you trust what other people say more than you trust what the company that's providing the products or services say, which one do you, which one do you trust more? And you as an individual, do you specifically seek out the negative reviews? Are you smart enough to see through what's real and what's not, what's just dirty laundry versus something substantial that can aid you in your decision process? So start there um, and recognize that reviews are rapidly becoming a part of everything we buy, everything we do, everything we experience. And if you're not embracing it today, the, the time has come to do it. You know, number two is to start to then put yourself in the shoes of your buyers and start to understand when they do their research before buying your products or services, where are they going to look? What are they going to find? And when if, if you can find it, they can certainly find it. And so then tip number three is then to take and make that a regular part of your uh, experience as a marketer, as an organization, is to curate that information and to stop selling as though you're a perfect five. Use the information around what you've sacrificed as an organization to be really good at what your core is or what those negative reviews say to inform your messaging that this idea that a 4.2 to a 4.5 sells better than a 5 not only tells us that you can no longer hide your flaws and expect to get away with it, but the brain science tells us that as individuals, we seek those negatives and that imperfection sells better than perfection, so it's time to embrace it. By the same token, we are all consumers at one point or another. What suggestions would you share with our listeners that can assist them in making decisions when they look at these reviews? How do they know which of the negative reviews to give credit to and which ones to dismiss? How do they weigh the overall balance, if you will, of the different levels of reviews? Yeah, I think that that's mainly subconsciously done, and it really goes to this concept of context. That I, I know for me personally, when I'm reading a negative reviews, I'm reading them in context. I'm trying to understand, does this apply to me? Uh, does this review seem logical? Is this review fair? And again, you know, most of this, when we think about this idea of reading negative reviews first, um, that we're trying to make this judgment around, when I talked about the scarf model, certainty, we're trying to understand and predict what our experience is going to be like. I think a lot of that is happening subconsciously, but I would just encourage um, people that at the conscious level to, you know, Use reviews in the purchases that you're making. They're there for a reason. They're there to help you make better decisions, more informed decisions. 
And then I would also encourage you to start leaving reviews. Again, only three to 5% of us do, but whether your experience is great, poor, or somewhere in the middle, your experiences are going to help other consumers make more informed decisions. And I just, I encourage you to embrace that because again, it's 2019 now. I can only imagine where this is going. It almost scares me to think about the fact that reviews have now proliferated their way into um, like our Uber and Lyft drivers are rating us. My kids who are, you know, six and eight years old are looking at reviews before they download, you know, apps on their iPads. They're looking at uh, scores of, you know, what the thumbs up, thumbs down review scores are on the Netflix shows that they're watching. And those are our future buyers. So embrace it now. Get ahead of it because the future is radically transparent. And that point that you just made about the 3 to 5% being the ones who leave reviews, I know a lot of people are saying, well, how much credit can I give to reviews if they only represent the point of view of 3 to 5% of the population of users? Yeah, I think that that's a, uh, that's a data science question. I don't really have a good answer for it, but uh, again, it's context. It's this, uh, this idea that we're trying to predict our experience. I think there is a subset of the population that will leave a review on everything. There's also a subset that will leave a review only when things are incredible. And there's a, a final set that will only leave a review when things are horrible. And again, the, the horrible ones are the ones that are getting read. And again, we are subconsciously making this decision as to whether that's relevant. Uh, we're, we're evaluating the context of that negative review. And I'm telling you, it aids credence and credibility to the positive ones uh, when you allow those negative reviews to show up on your site. And it's how you respond to them that really matters. So I, I, I think that um, as consumers, I don't really care as much around the the 95% of people that have had a an expected um, type of experience with your products. I'm actually looking for the extremes because that helps me understand what's possible, uh, both positive and negative. And again, it's context. Todd, thank you for joining us from Palatine, Illinois. Well, again, thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. And to our audience, you have been listening to Todd Capone, who is author of The Transparency Sale, How Unexpected Honesty and Understanding the Buying Brain Can Transform Your Results, who discussed his book. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.